Good morning, this is uh, our look into 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, and the big opening question is, do you have the mind of Christ? You will hear my baby gurgling on the floor, she stuffed something in her mouth, so hopefully that will be fine. It's what we left on last time, this big challenge to us. Do we have the mind of Christ? You know, truly, how will our Christianity unfold? Whether or not we will really know God's mystery is whether or not our minds are aligned with Jesus. And Paul begins chapter 3 by explaining to the Corinthian church that because they are young and immature Christians, he has to talk to them in simple ways that they would understand. And he actually says, you are immature because of how they are treating one another. So if you look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, he says, you are controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous and you quarrel. And he's saying that this is just like the rest of the world arguing with one another. Therefore, they are young Christians, they're immature Christians. And he makes the case that if the church gives allegiance to one person, you know, if they say, well, I'm a disciple of Apollos or Peter or Paul, that this is just factionalism and it will lead to division, faction warfare. And it's tough. And I guess Paul understands it's tough. People are the image bearers of God. You know, we could say we have God's divine spark. When a person is charismatic, is a powerful presence, they talk really well, they're attractive, etc., etc. It's really easy to move from simply admiring them and their hard work to hero worship, you know, cult worship, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the identity cult that we have um, in so many celebrities. We see in people a reflection of God. But we have to be careful not to mistake the reflection of God, the image bearers of God, for God. Now, the Roman and Greek worlds to which Paul is writing to, they built their statues of gods to look like people. They deified Julius Caesar because of his massive accomplishments. Surely he is a god, right? And for Paul, claiming allegiance to a person to explain your faith or position in the church, you know, I'm a disciple in the church of Apollos, is not exactly the same as worshipping a person, but he's saying that it is a step in that direction. And so he challenges them. He says, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants doing only the work God has set. So read 1 Corinthians 3 verses 5 to 9. And I'm sure we've all heard this picture used before, but just take a few minutes. How does it challenge you in how you understand your role in God's work? Does it help you if you might feel either jealous or tempted to worship others for their role in the church? So then Paul goes on to use the image of building something great. He says he lays the foundations, but understands that others will be building upon it. And in quotation marks, different materials may be used in the construction of what comes next. And that one day judgmental fire will test the quality of the work. Now, obviously, he's not talking about building houses. He's using that image. He talks about building the body of the church, the living kingdom of God. He is setting the foundations of how it will operate. But then he knows that others are going to come after him to build upon that foundation, planting churches in new places, taking over leadership, taking on the responsibility of spreading the word. And so, too, will the church be built with all the different kinds of people. And when there are lots of different people, there are going to be lots of different opportunities for blessing and growth and lots of different opportunities for quarrels and divisions and sin to creep in. And Paul says in verse 10, so therefore, whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. The builders of the church carry the biggest responsibility in the world, the very most important work of God. So... 
in light of that, is that how we understand our place in God's plan? Do we who build, whether in leadership in a church body or in spreading the word and being the image bearers of God to our neighbours, do we understand how important it is to make sure, to quote Paul, our work is of good quality? And what do we understand by our work? That might be a lot to process in, in the morning, and I'm sorry if that didn't make sense. Like Paul is quick to encourage the church that even if the builders of the work isn't great, that, quote, the builder who worked for God will be saved, but like someone barely escaping. Now, he's not suggesting that God is malicious, but he is trying to convey that if we are going to spread God's kingdom and be the truth of Christ, we can't really be doing it in a half-hearted way or in a kind of meh way and expect things to go really, really well. We need to recognise just how important building the church is. Remember, though, that Paul's letter is not first and foremost an attack on the Corinthian church for them being, you know, disunited. It is first and foremost a call for their church to be united. And there is a difference between that, even though the outcome might sound the same. And in verse 16, he says, Realize all of you together are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives in you. And he says, God's temple is holy, and you, all of you together, are that temple. Now, it was the greatest, like, sacrilege and blasphemy to destroy a god's temple. If you, you know, you attack another nation, you go into the temple, you steal the idols at the temple, you destroy the temple. That is, like, the, the final blow. That nation is done. Their god is dead. Bad. And though the Christian temple is not bricks and idols, it is no less terrible to destroy the temple of God. So look at 16 again. He's not saying one of you who is super charismatic is the temple, or one branch or denomination is the temple. He is saying all believers together need to understand all of you are the temple. It would be the greatest sin to break apart the temple. And what's more, if the temple of Christ is not unified, but fractious and broken into small petty shadows of this united temple, how is it really going to represent Jesus in the world? Read verse 21 and 22 and take a few minutes and ask yourself, does this help you out there to not be envious of others? And does it encourage you to help bring unity to our church and our churches and want to reach out to other congregations? So in chapter four, my, my Bible's headlined Paul and the Corinthians. He gives himself as this example going forward. Yes, he does. Read Paul's assessment of himself in verses 1 to 4 and note down how everything he does is not to further his own legacy, but to ensure that more and more people just know Jesus and receive the salvation in him. He's moved beyond what others think about him. He, he Only being right with God matters to Paul. And when it comes to his own self-esteem, he's like, it doesn't matter. If God knows that if I'm right with God, that's fine. And he challenges us to pursue this comfort and this truth as well. Yes. In verse 5, he says, don't make judgments about people ahead of time. And in verse 7, he says, what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? Why boast as though it were not a gift? If our comfort and identity is in Jesus, we won't feel the need to judge others. Because we judge others, it's basically we're comparing them to ourselves. We won't feel the need to boast in things that we have done as if we did it all by ourselves when we know that all we have is a blessing from God 
we can move away from boasting judgment and division. Have a read of verses 10 to 14 and take a couple of minutes just to go through that. So the Corinthian church had obviously been divided into factions, each of whom believed they and they alone were the real truth, and that's how you should be going forward. And Paul contrasts them um, with his example and those he travels with. He says that our dedication made us look like fools, you who claim to be so wise. He says, we are weak, but you are so powerful. We are ridiculed and you are so honoured. And he then explains that his ministry has brought suffering onto himself. He's been beaten and hungry and weary, having to bless those who curse him. And he's not boasting. He's not saying, oh, look at how great I am. He's trying to make the church realise, this is a broken, fractious church, that church leaders should not expect to have glory and fame like the rest of the world, but that their lives should be a model of working and serving and sacrificing for the best of the congregation, selflessly for the benefit of others. And so Paul is saying, look, I have suffered and worked wearily for other people. That is a good model in a church leader. And he asked the church to imitate him, not because he thinks he's the best, but because he himself has realised that this is what modelling Christ looks like. And so we finish chapter four with Paul's gentle warning that he will come and visit and that these, in quote, arrogant members will be tested to see whether they genuinely have the Lord's power or are just good at giving speeches. Like we mentioned earlier, all human beings are made in the image of God. And it's very easy for us to be swayed by clever arguments and passionate speeches, by feelings that make us think we are seeing God. And Paul knows this, and he knows that these church leaders who are splitting the congregation will either be actually legitimate, and the split is because actually one of them is decent, like himself, and the others aren't, or simply they are all using clever words, feelings and trickery to split people into little like mini personality cults and i'm not bashing clever speeches because i love a clever speech i love watching people you know go toe to toe with their speeches and their logic and their reason and i admire the spoken word and its power our speech is one of the most incredible images of god that we have for in the beginning was the word and by god's voice all things were made but if we're not really careful and wise our clever words can deceive and if our clever words are what we are using to kind of, you know, get people to come over to our side, they may only stay a mere reflection of the glory of God and they may not be God's full truth. The full truth of God is seen in self-sacrifice, loving service, loving compassion that gives honour and glory to other people before ourselves. The mere reflection of God is what we see when we see these amazing things, but it is just someone using their God-given talent to enhance themselves. Have a thought about 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. Read the whole thing through if you want to today. And if you have any questions or thoughts, get in touch.